Hello. In this edition of Audio News, we report exciting progress against malaria. We'll hear how birth weight affects your risk of getting breast cancer and about new insights into the way sunlight can affect your eyesight and what you can do about it. I'm Sarah Maxwell. Important signs that the battle against malaria is being won in the Gambia come from a scientific study just published in The Lancet. Malaria prevention and treatment both have improved in the Gambia and the disease has declined dramatically in the last 10 years. One of the study authors, Brian Greenwood, told Peter Goodwin what's been happening to cause this. It's difficult to know exactly what has happened. One important component has been the use of insecticide treated bed nets and that's a approach to the prevention of malaria that seems to be very successful in Africa. And the first studies that really showed that were done in the Gambia um, in the 90s, about 20 years ago now. But really nothing much happened uh, to get this intervention used and it remained as a research uh, publication, a very nice paper in the Lancet, everybody was happy about it and then nothing really happened. But about 10 years ago, the world really got interested again in malaria and uh, started making a bigger investment. And some of that investment has gone into insecticide-treated nets. And the uptake of those in the Gambia has increased. And that's one thing that has helped to bring the incidence down. Now, it sounds fairly non-dramatic, but you have got a quite a good uptake rate of children under the age of five sleeping under nets. It's very interesting. And how I got interested in this area from the beginning was that when I worked in northern Nigeria, which is very similar in many ways to the Gambia, people didn't use nets there. And yet when I came to work in the Gambia, it was obvious that people were, lots of people were using nets, partly for social reasons. It wasn't because they were being encouraged to do that by, for medical reasons. And for some reason, we don't quite understand the Gambia and Guinea-Bissau and this part of West Africa has a long uh, tradition of using bed nets going back probably for 100 years. So when we had the idea, it wasn't my idea, but other people developed the idea of uh, treating them with insecticide and using those as a malaria control tool, then the population was very receptive to that because they knew about nets anyhow. And that's not the case in other parts of Africa. But nearly everywhere where people have been given nets, they've been very happy to use them. Can you give me a broad brush of what results you've got? Because one of the statistics that sticks in my mind is that you seem to have got a 100% reduction in mortality in certain ways of looking at it. I, th- I think that just happens to be um, in one hospital where that, that was the case. And the, the data that's presented in in the Lancet paper is a bit of a hodgepodge. I mean, it wasn't a planned study when you could very nicely set out to do your surveillance methods and so on. And this was really a what we call a retrospective study, gathering together the data that was there from different hospitals. But the striking thing is that wherever one looked or whatever sort of data one collected, they all more or less show the same thing with this dramatic decline happening about starting about three or four years ago. Brian Greenwood of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and former director of the Medical Research Council Laboratories in the Gambia. The older drug chloroquine, which has been so valuable in treating and preventing malaria in the past, is not so helpful in certain parts of Africa now. The parasite carried by the mosquito has become resistant to it. So as well as the bed nets for preventing malaria, the Medical Research Council team in the Gambia has been introducing new drugs that are more effective. 
and they've also been running clinics and services to deliver malaria diagnosis and prevention efficiently to more people. David Conway, head of the MRC's Malaria Research Programme in The Gambia, told Peter about his first-hand experience of the quelling of the malaria epidemic in The Gambia. What's it been like? Since 2003, we've seen every year uh, some reduction in the numbers of cases of malaria coming to several hospitals and, and smaller health facilities in the western part of The Gambia. And this surprised us when we first became aware that something was happening in 2005 and it, it encouraged us to do a retrospective analysis on the situation so far which has confirmed that up to this year we now have only about a third or a quarter of the number of cases uh, that we used to have five years ago or more. What are the factors that you've changed in the Gambia? The main change that we have seen is that since 2003 there has been a, a massively increased support for free distribution of insecticide-treated bed nets to children under five and to pregnant women. And this support and the programs within the country for delivering these have been from several sources, including UNICEF, WHO, and the Global Fund to Fight HIV, TB, and Malaria. So collectively, we've seen now the coverage of insecticide-treated nets um, going higher than 60% of people in those categories. Um, and now people are being encouraged to make these more widely available to older children and adults as well. What evidence have you that that has actually been instrumental in causing the reduction of malaria, though? We don't have any proof of that in the Gambia. It's, it's really a coincident occurrence that the decline in the numbers of cases of malaria has been at the same time as the increase in the insecticide-treated net use. Um, but we certainly don't think that the decline is only due to that. We think that there are other factors as well, um, including people having more access to anti-malarial drugs. Um, many of these drugs are used uh, more effectively now, and even some of the drugs are perhaps used presumptively against illnesses that are sometimes not malaria at all and that could be considered as being a, a misuse and this is a, this is a, this is a problem but it also can have, have contributed towards the decline because there are more anti-malarials in the population in general use. Could you describe to me what changes have been made in both treatment on the one hand and prophylaxis on the other? Treatment in 2004 up till 2004 was the old drug chloroquine which uh, used to be very effective and then became quite ineffective because the parasite had developed resistance. So from 2005 onwards Fancidar uh, was added to, to this and was usually the first line of treatment uh, which was much more effective in the Gambia uh, and I think that this uh, Fancidar drug lasts uh, a longer time in the blood and gives more of a prophylactic effect than some other anti-malarials do and um, this year, in 2008, we have introduced, the, uh, the country has introduced COARTEM, which is one of the most effective antimalarial drugs to date, one of the new artemisinin-based combination therapies. Right, that's treatment. What, however, has been the policy on prophylaxis, and what, in your opinion, should be the policy on prophylaxis? There hasn't been any policy on prophylaxis by taking antimalarial drugs in, in the population in the Gambia except for pregnant women who for several years have 
been encouraged to take Fancidar on two or three occasions during pregnancy to reduce the risk of having malaria during pregnancy and, and by reducing that risk it increases the likelihood of having a, a good birth outcome. And the uptake of this intermittent preventative treatment as it's called or IPT has been slowly but steadily increasing among pregnant women in the Gambia and although it's not as widely used as it should be, yet it, it's certainly being used by more and more women now and that has contributed towards an improvement in their health. David Conway of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Now cancer. There's been confirmation that birth weight is related to your chances of having breast cancer in later life. This is reported in a study published in the journal Public Library of Science Medicine. Author Isabel de Sange Silva told us that birth size is probably controlled by hormones in the womb, which are thought also to influence breast cancer risks. She described the work they've now done in a big new study that's gathered together a huge amount of data from smaller studies to make a pooled analysis covering a large number of breast cancer cases. We had uh, over 22,000 breast cancer cases and over 500,000 uh, no cases. So it's really a very powerful analysis in that sense. Now, some facts then have emerged from this. What are they? So what we were able to find was that in studies that were based on birth records, so they have access to the original birth records that were completed either by the midwives or the obstetricians when the women were born, we found a very clear positive association between measures of birth size, such, such as birth weight and birth length, and risk of breast cancer subsequently you know, in life. In studies that were based on recall, you know, when the women were already adults, so asking the woman, you know, how big were you when you were born, or asking their mothers, we didn't find such an association. But that was essentially because of measurement error. Who can remember? You know, it's very hard to know the exact birth weight or birth length when you were at birth, yeah? It's, it's just something that we don't know. Mm. Now, taking the average weight of a baby is uh, somewhere between two and a half, three and a half kilos or something like that, how big in percentage terms do you have to increase that before you get a risk of breast cancer? It's the continuous, it's, it's on a continuous scale. So it's not, there is no threshold. What we found is that as birth weight increases, the risk increases in a progressive way. For every half kilo increase in birth weight, the risk of breast cancer increases by about 6%. So women who weigh more than 4 kilos at birth had about 10% increased risk of breast cancer compared to women who were born and, and weigh at the time of birth uh, between 3 and 3.5 three and kilos. Now, how relevant is that increase in comparison with the risk of increase, the increased risk of breast cancer due to other causes, such as, for instance, the number of pregnancies a woman has or the age at first pregnancy? Well, these associations, if real, and they appear to be real, but we don't know, but if it, if it is a true association, the magnitude is very similar. They are modest association, but then most of the risk factors for breast cancer are relatively modest. But because breast cancer is relatively common disease, they, they are important, even if relatively modest. So we don't know if they, it is a true causal association, but if it is, th the magnitude wouldn't be different from other reproductive factors and um, other known, very well-established risk factors for breast cancer.
Isabel de Sange Silva of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She's not recommending that women should try to have smaller babies to avoid risk, but she is saying that we're beginning to piece together the different parts of the puzzle about what it is that causes breast cancer. A diet with plenty of fruit and vegetables could protect your eyesight from damage caused by sunlight. A new study has shown that your eyes have antioxidants to help protect against macular degeneration caused by sunlight and that the best way to get more of them is by eating fruit and veg. The URI study surveyed nearly 5,000 people in seven centres from the north to the south of Europe from Norway to Spain. They asked about sun exposure, behaviour and work patterns and diet, and they've even checked for actual weather and cloud cover. Astrid Fletcher gave Peter Goodwin the details. A lot of people have suggested that sunlight might be an adverse factor for age-related macular degeneration, which is the commonest cause of um, vision loss and blindness in developed countries. What, what we've found in common with other studies, that sunlight exposure itself looked at across the whole population didn't appear to exert an adverse effect and we looked at the the antioxidants which we know are the most important in the retina and that's vitamin C vitamin E the two they're called carotenoids lutein and zeaxanthin people will have heard no doubt of something called the yellow spot well the yellow spot is made up of the macular carotenoids lutein and zeaxanthin and they are found in the eye at 35 times the amount found in the plasma so they are incredibly important for protecting the eye so we looked at those four and we also looked at dietary zinc because you also know zinc's important and, and what indeed did you find yeah. about these protective substances and, and whether yeah. people were more likely to get AMD what we found was that people who, who were in the lowest quarter of each of those antioxidants had um, an increased risk due to sunlight, due to exposure to sunlight of neovascular AMD. People who had adequate levels of these antioxidant vitamins were fine. What we found as well was that people who had low levels of several of those vitamins, so for example, they had low levels of vitamin C and low levels of zeaxanthin, one of the macular carotenoids, and low levels of vitamin E, those people were up to nearly three and a half times the risk of having neovascular AMD. So low levels of any one increased the risk by about 1.5. Low levels of all three, and it went up to about three, between three and four. That's quite a big difference. Mm. So this tempts me to ask you, are there things you can do either to reduce your exposure to the sunlight mm. or to increase your protective substances, the antioxidants? Yeah. Certainly our study is one of the first to en endorse a, a general recommendation that people should protect their eyes and they can do this several ways. First of all, it's not a good idea to go out in the middle of the day when sunlight is at its brightest, particularly in the summer. If you do have to go out, and we would also recommend that we're not asking people to stay out of the sunlight altogether because sunlight is essential for vitamin D and that's very important, particularly for older people, as well as the positive psychological effects of being out in the sun. But we ask people to protect, suggest to people they protect their eyes, for example, by using sunglasses and, in addition, using a hat with a broad brim. Now, the hat needs to have a broad brim. 
And, and a baseball cap isn't good enough because it only protects the front of the eye, but of course there's a lot of reflection from hard surfaces which comes in at the side of the eye. Is there anything you can do about increasing your antioxidants though? Yeah. All that is needed is for people to follow the current dietary recommendations for the consumption of fruits and vegetables. We're certainly not recommending people to take supplements. There's no need to take supplements. Achieving the, the levels of vitamin C, vitamin E, lutein and zeaxanthin can be achieved by paying attention to the consumption of the vitamin C and vitamin E and carotenoid rich fruits and vegetables. So lots of dark leafy green vegetables, uh, citrus fruits, vitamin C, things like yellow peppers, green peppers, corn, good sources of zeaxanthin, and uh, a range of uh, stuff like grains and cereals for vitamin E. Uh, for zinc, again, there are specific dietary recommendations, and people should look at those. You know, zinc is available from a, a variety of different sources. So if you want to get your suntan, which is a very normal thing to do and, and can be quite healthy up to a degree, still, as long as you eat lots of fruit and veg and keep your eyes in the shade. Yeah, protect your eyes. The, you need to do both of those things. Yeah. Astrid Fletcher, Professor of Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, leaving all of us in the shade. And that's all for this edition. We'll be back soon with more audio news from the London School. Until then, from me, Sarah Maxwell, goodbye.